And so really a lot of this is truly about Netanyahu himself. And if he were removed from the scene by the electorate or eventually perhaps if he's convicted, um, which will take time, if at all, if that happened, Israel would be much more stable. Israel's parliamentary election this March, its fourth in two years, has provided no conclusion to the political deadlock the country continues to face. As of now, neither coalition has been able to achieve a majority in Israel's parliament, continuing the electoral gridlock which may result in a fifth election this summer. This constant cycle of re-election underscores an ongoing political crisis in Israel. What are the factors that have caused such a severe national political deadlock? What is Netanyahu's role in this crisis? And what does the inability for Israel's parliament to form stable coalitions say about the state of its government and its position in the Middle East? Joining us today to answer these questions is Dr. Nathan Sachs. Dr. Nathan Sachs is the director of the Brookings Institution's Center for Middle East Policy in Washington, D.C. He publishes widely on Middle East affairs, Israel's foreign policy, and Israeli domestic politics, and is a frequent media commentator on these issues. Dr. Sachs has taught at Georgetown University, was a Hewlett Fellow at Stanford University, a visiting fellow at Tel Aviv University's Dayan Center, and a Fulbright Fellow in Indonesia. He holds a BA from the Amarim Honors Program at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and an MA and PhD in Political Science from Stanford University. All right, Dr. Sachs, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. So to start us off, um, let's just talk about Israel's most recent election. So on March 23rd, Israel held its fourth election in two years. The result once again yielded a political gridlock. Could you please begin by providing our listeners with a brief summary of Israel's current political landscape and structure? Sure. So Israel has a parliamentary system, which is very different from the American one, but of course is very common in the world. It's actually more common than a presidential one. The classic pres- uh, parliamentary system is the British one, which is partly where Israel got it. And the core of it is that the locus of most authority is the parliament in Israel called the Knesset. And it then appoints what one might think of as an executive committee from within the parliament to run the affairs day to day. And that would be called the cabinet or in Israel, sometimes called the government. And so the prime minister who leads this cabinet is by law a member of parliament. That's true in Israel as well. Uh, the prime minister has to be a member of Knesset. And in fact, most of the parla- most of the government itself, most of the ministers are members of Knesset as well. That All that is pretty normal. What's abnormal, or at least uh, a bit extreme in Israel, is the system by which uh, the Knesset is elected, the electoral system. Israel has a very proportional representation system, and it is a one district throughout the country. So what does that mean? It means there's no senator from Jerusalem or congressman from Tel Aviv. Instead, Israelis vote in one district throughout the country, and all the votes are tallied for a list of for each list of candidates, each party. And if a party gets a quarter of the votes, it gets a quarter of the seats in the Knesset. If it gets 5% of the vote, it gets 5% of the seats in the Knesset. That to Israelis seems actually very natural and straightforward, it, although it is very different from other systems. One of the consequences is that there's a very large number of parties in Israel. So that's the end of 101, uh, Palestine 101. Now, what, what does that actually mean in Israel's uh, scene today? Israel is gridlocked between a pro-Netanyahu, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and a change block. And in these different blocks are a whole amalgam of different parties. Because there's such a large number of parties, each party can represent a small group within the population. So in the change block, what used to be the left, you'll have parties that represent the Arab minority of Israel. About 20% of Israelis are Palestinians, uh, speak Arabic predominantly. These are inside Israel, not the Palestinians in the West Bank or the Gaza Strip. 
they are represented, of course, in parties in the Knesset. You have left-wing parties, you have centrist parties, uh, more or less secular, mostly secular Jewish. And then on the right wing, you have also some parties that are, are in this change block, some modern Orthodox parties. You have ultra-Orthodox parties who tend to be in the Netanyahu camp, uh, extreme right parties, national religious parties, and especially the largest party, the Likud party of Benjamin Netanyahu. So where are we are today? We're at already four elections where Netanyahu tries to gain a majority of the Knesset to form a new government, has failed to get a majority, but the opposition has failed to cohere around one candidate to replace him. And as a result, Israel keeps going back to the elector, uh, keeps asking the voters to come up with a new Knesset that might be able to uh, cohere into, into a new cabinet. Yeah, so d- diving deeper into what's influencing Israeli politics today, what are some key issues that voters are taking um, to the polls? Um, what issues have driven the past couple elections that happened in Israel? So in Israel, classically, early in the state, the division was often along uh, lines of econo- economics and other things that divide the United States as well. Early in the state, meaning between 1948 and about 1967, Israel had a very predominant uh, socialist uh, party in the center that ruled actually several 10 years later as well until 77. And the main issues were between sort of a socialist or social democratic center and left and the nationalist and the conservative right wing. After 1967, when Israel won the Six-Day War, it conquered territories from Egypt, from Syria, uh, and from Jordan, and these included the Sinai, the Gaza Strip from Egypt, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem from Jordan, and the Golan Heights from Syria. And Israeli politics transformed into being mostly about the question of how to relate to the Arab neighbors and to the peace, the possibility of peace, how hawkish voters are about returning territory to uh, the Arab countries or to establishing a Palestinian state, and or versus how dovish they are about that. That became the defining issue. So when you say right wing in Israel, you're not really talking about taxes or healthcare. You're talking about uh, attitudes towards the territories, especially the West Bank, and whether or not someone supports the idea of ceding territory uh, to the Palestinians or to other countries. These last elections have been special in the sense that people still vote on that, and they vote also on issues of religion and state, and they also, of course, to a certain degree, also vote on issues of the econ- economics. But more than anything, in these last three or four elections, they've been voting on Benjamin Netanyahu himself. Netanyahu is on trial. In fact, today, the main part of the trial began uh, for three counts of corruption, including a charge of bribery. And the main case for the change camp has been that someone on trial for such such uh, charges cannot serve as prime minister and that they will not join his, his uh, coalition. For him, it's become all the more important to remain in power, not only because he thinks himself to be the, the only one who can do it properly, but also because he hopes to get out of his legal trouble via legislation, passing some kind of legislation or changing the personnel and the prosecution so that he would be immune, at least while in office, from this kind of prosecution. So let's talk a little bit more about Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. What was his really his role in the current political gridlock, and how has he influenced the most recent election? So Netanyahu really has become the issue. It's about him. So the gridlock is a gridlock about whether or not you want Netanyahu. And what do I mean by that? I mean by that that in previous election rounds, in previous years, Uh, You had parties uh, that would clearly be on the right wing, very hawkish on the Palestinian issue, 
also right-wing in other ways. And they would usually coalesce around the Likud party, the party that Netanyahu heads, and in fact, around Netanyahu himself. Many of the players that today are in the Knesset trying to decide now who might lead the next government served under Netanyahu. Because Netanyahu is now already the longest serving prime minister in the history of Israel, 15 years cumulatively, and because especially of the indictments, now already trial, he has become very divisive. So you have right-wing parties that are on the left in the sense of the change block. They are in opposition now, but they themselves are extremely hawkish. As a result, the Knesset today, in fact, the Knesset that was just elected, is actually the most right-wing ever in Israel, not necessarily because the electorate has changed, not that people have become more right-wing, although there has been that trend in recent years, but mostly because you have people opposing Netanyahu voting for all sorts of different parties for different reasons, some of them quite right-wing today. So Netanyahu has been very influential in that. Of course, as prime minister, he also, as an incumbent, he also has many of the cards. He holds many of the cards. That includes his ability to conduct foreign relations. Netanyahu is very skilled at that. Um, You've probably heard him speak. His English is, is almost perfect. He grew up partly in the United States. He's very good at public relations. That's, in fact, what catapulted him into public life and into leadership back in the 1990s and and before that. And in that sense, he's been able to capitalize on his his abilities in the foreign policy realm uh, to his advantage at home. This was especially true when Trump was in office. He obviously had a very close relationship with Trump, but more importantly, Trump thought it was in his own benefit to have a close relationship with Israel and with Netanyahu, both of whom are very popular in Trump's base. And Netanyahu was able not only to deal with Trump effectively, but also with Putin and also with Narendra Modi of India, and most recently to sign what's known as the Abraham Accords, normalization agreements between Israel and in particular the United Arab Emirates, although three other countries as well. All this has given Netanyahu ammunition for the claim that no one else can fill his shoes, that he needs to be the main candidate or he needs to be continue to be prime minister. But of course, he himself is also the one on trial, and that has become his Achilles heel, and it's become a, you know, the central rallying cry for the change block. I'll say one important point that has changed in the last election, just in this round, has been Netanyahu's appeal to the Arab vote in Israel, the 20% or 21% of Israelis uh, who are themselves Arab, and many of them see themselves as Palestinian Israelis. And Netanyahu his try is broken, really, with his own tradition, where he's used very harsh rhetoric towards this minority and has now tried to court them, court their vote with ads in Arabic and with um, really an appeal directly to the voters, also in an attempt to break the joint list that had been formed among four Arab parties. He successfully did that. One of the parties left the joint list, ran on its own, and in fact, got into the Knesset. This is a party called Ra'am. It represents uh, the Islamic movement or part of the Islamic movement in Israel, so basically akin to the Muslim Brotherhood. And they have said very clearly that they would deal with anyone who might win, including Netanyahu, that they do not rule out cooperating with Netanyahu in exchange for policy concessions, the argument being that they should not be beholden to one side or another. And this is a bit similar to the attempt that Donald Trump made in the last election to appeal to minorities that traditionally vote heavily Democratic, most clearly African-Americans who vote overwhelmingly for the Democrats in the United States. And nonetheless, Trump made some gains, not big gains, but some gains in the 2020 election in that community. And among Latino vote, which is, of course, a much broader and more diverse vote, um, 
not all of it identifying as Latino, in fact. And there, uh, Trump made, in fact, more gains. Netanyahu probably saw this and made his own calculation in Israel as well and saw advantage in doing that. It was partly successful, but it has yet to bring him the victory he was hoping for. You mentioned how uh, Netanyahu's foreign policy accomplishments, be it through relationship with President Trump or Prime Minister Modi, translated into domestic political success. And, you know, it's not clear how much, uh, how, uh, if at all, Biden will prioritize Arab-Israeli issue uh, issue in his foreign policy, uh, you know, plate. But then it seems it's fair to it seems like Biden will be less supportive of uh, Netanyahu than Trump. How do you see this change in uh, American leadership affecting Netanyahu's future standing in Israeli politics? It's a great question, and it it is an important factor. By and large, Israelis care very much about the relationship with the United States, and it's not coincidental. Israeli voters correctly view the United States as uh, obviously the key ally for Israel in the world, but also that this alliance is really a pillar of Israeli national security. And as such, the ability of an Israeli prime minister to deal effectively with the United States is very important. Netanyahu himself remembers this well, remembers the downside of that well, because in the 1990s, he came to power first in 1996. Bill Clinton was then president of the United States, had a very close relationship with Netanyahu's predecessors, especially Tzhak Rabin, who was assassinated in 1995. Rabin was the one who signed the Oslo Accords with the Yasser Arafat and the Palestinians. And then Rabin's successor from his own party, Shimon Peres. Netanyahu beat Peres in 1996, despite, in fact, uh, great efforts by Clinton to help Peres and boost his popularity ahead of the elections. And Netanyahu had a very strained relationship with Bill Clinton. Um, Bill Clinton is... uh, credited uh, with saying after the first meeting that uh, it's not clear to him if Netanyahu knows which country is the superpower. Um, That rocky relationship did not help Netanyahu. Israelis, by and large, prefer that their prime minister deal effectively with the American president. Fast forward to Netanyahu's second term. He comes to power in 2009, and that's, of course, the year that uh, Barack Obama came to power. And so again, a democratic president and one that was more complicated for Netanyahu than Bill Clinton. They had a difficult relationship uh, sort of from the start on a personal level. It became policy-wise much more difficult over time around the Iran nuclear negotiations by the United States. This became a very combative relationship, openly combative. And here Netanyahu managed, in fact, to rally the Israeli public to his point of view and where many Israeli voters viewed his uh, willingness and ability to confront the American president in the American political scene as an asset. Netanyahu managed to convince Israelis that he was defending their interests with regard to Iran and the threat of a nuclear Iran, and in that regard flipped the script on, uh, the, on the political calculus of confronting an American president. In comes Trump, and of course, not only on the Iran nuclear issue, but on a whole host of other issues, Trump went out of his way to fulfill Israeli desires, including things that Israel didn't even remember it wanted. The United States recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. It um, moved the embassy to Jerusalem. It cut off aid to basically any Palestinian uh, Entity, but also, uh, but in a, a whole host of things that that Israel in particular had wanted, and some things that Israel was actually afraid to ask for, and perhaps didn't in fact want. 
And but more important, most importantly, from Netanyahu's perspective, Trump pulled out of the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or the the Iran nuclear deal. And in that regard, there was a president there who was simply doing everything he could, uh, really almost bar nothing, uh, to try and promote what he viewed as um, what Netanyahu viewed as Israel's interests. It culminated at the end also with the Abraham Accords, very much coordinated by the United States, and as you noted. The United States put a lot of effort into putting this into place. So the UAE probably wanted normalization with Israel in its own right and had its own reasons for doing so, although the American connection was very important. But if you think of other countries, and in particular Morocco and Sudan, which uh, partially normalized relations with Israel in the aftermath of the Abraham Accords, these that were intimately tied to the American position. Sudan probably had no interest in normal, normal relations with Israel, but it was undergoing and still is a very important political transition and desperately needed the American administration to delist it as a state sponsor of terrorism, allowing it uh, to, uh, to engage with foreign direct investment and a whole host of international trade that are very important. The Trump administration withheld that decision, was not willing to delist the, the new Sudanese regime, although it was no longer sponsoring terrorism, until Sudan agreed to normalize relations with Israel, which is, of course, completely unrelated to the issue of the listing. In the case, and, and in the end, Sudan agreed to do so, um, at least partially. We don't know how much it will continue, especially since the same kind of pressure is not applied now from Washington. Morocco already had quite a bit of relations with Israel. I should note it's politically very important in Israel. There's a very large community of Israelis who, uh, uh, Jewish Israelis with Moroccan background who came from the very large Jewish community in Morocco. And they maintain close relations to Morocco and Morocco in fact maintain a very favorable, favorable attitude towards them, especially the monarchy in Morocco. And so normalizing relations with Morocco is a very popular move in Israel. And um, for Morocco, there were there was precedent for this. This was not completely new. But what they got in return from the Trump administration was, from the Moroccan perspective, enormous. They got American recognition of Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara, which for Morocco is very, very high on the foreign policy agenda. And so you can see the Trump administration really bending backwards uh, to to try and promote these kinds of things. Now, Will the Biden administration be in favor of the Abraham Accords and of normalization? Of course. It's very hard to argue against the idea that countries of the world should have normal relations, even if they continue to disagree with each other on a variety of different things like the Palestinian issue. But to argue that actually argue that uh, two members of the United Nations should not have embassies is sort of a difficult thing to argue, although, of course, there are some who somehow manage to make this argument still. But will the Biden administration bend over backwards like the Trump administration did and uh, subsume other foreign policy issues like Western Sahara or delisting of Sudan in favor of normalization uh, with Israel, extremely unlikely. It would be a very strange thing for the Biden administration to do. So you will see probably support for this kind of thing, but you will see in general the Israeli issue, the Israeli-Palestinian issue, the Israeli-Arab issue more broadly, much lower on the priority list of a very, very busy Biden administration that has domestic issues to deal with, the pandemic, the economy, and on foreign policy, China and Europe, and then of course Iran, and way, way down the list are Israeli and Israeli-Palestinian affairs. All right. So taking us back a little bit to um, Israeli domestic politics, um, due to the political, the current political gridlock in Israel's parliament, 
um, and the small um, the small number of uh, people that it would take to tip uh, either coalition in favor of having um, a majority in the parliament. Minor parties could hold a lot of sway in future government. So what role have far-right parties and politicians such as um, Natali Bennett played in turmoil over Israel's government in the past two years? So you're absolutely right. When things are so close, uh, that means that a very small party or even defectors from small parties or from large parties can have a very large sway. So if you can imagine Netanyahu, the pro-Netanyahu camp, including Naftali Bennett, which is he's sort of wavering, but assuming for a moment he's in the pro-Netanyahu camp, they got 59 seats out of 120, meaning they're one shy of half. So if there were two defectors from what's called the change bloc in favor of Netanyahu, he could, in theory, form a coalition, a very small coalition, but nonetheless a coalition with a small majority, again, assuming that Naftali Bennett joined him. Could there be two defectors from another party? Certainly, it could happen, especially since there are right-wing parties uh, in the change bloc, and who knows, uh, two, two defectors may be found. Moreover, there could be a small party. I already mentioned Ram, the uh, predominantly Arab party, in fact, called the Joint Arab Party. And it, uh, it has said, as I noted, that it does not rule out supporting Netanyahu. So for the right price, perhaps they would support Netanyahu. However, Netanyahu would have to, and Netanyahu, of course, would take it. The question, of course, for Netanyahu is if he gets support from the Islamic party, how does he keep support from his very extreme right wing, including uh, a very small party that he helped bring into the Knesset that includes overtly racist members, people who anti-Arab racist. Uh, in fact, a member uh, or a successor to a, a party led in the 1980s by someone named Mayor Kahana, who was overtly racist and was banned from running an Israeli election subsequently uh, because of uh, his racist views and racist policy promotion. Um, that party has already said that it would not join a coalition or support a coalition if it was also supported by the Islamic party. And so you can see the difficulty of holding together what would be a very wide tent between the Islamists and at least some of the far right being racist. Um, that If that's true of Netanyahu, it's of course also true of the change bloc. They would be trying to find some kind of very, very broad tent between uh, far right-wing parties like Naftali Bennett, whom you mentioned, he heads a party called Yamina, which in Hebrew means right word, um, and is clearly very, of course, right-wing, uh, is uh, staunchly opposed to a Palestinian state or two-state solution, um, and in many other respects, right-wing as well, between them and the overtly left-wing parties, Labour, Meretz, and perhaps even the Joint Arab List. It'd be very hard to do. Today, if you look at the map, you see really two parties in the middle. There's something called Kingmakers. And oddly enough, they are the Islamic Party and Naftali Bennett's party. It's really a, a sign of the times how strange it is that you now have these kinds of kind of Kingmakers, two parties that in normal times would be on the far right and the far left. They're suddenly in this new jumble, uh, potential Kingmakers. In fact, so much so that Naftali Bennett, who does not lead one of the two largest parties, has some chance of becoming the next prime minister himself. That is because... Without him, it doesn't seem possible for the change bloc to form a coalition and to unseat Netanyahu. And, and Naftali Bennett's price would probably be that he himself be prime minister. He certainly sees himself as candidate for that. So he, although he's had a very tumultuous two years, he did not even pass 
the electoral threshold of 3.25% in the first election of these four. But now he may find himself prime minister if he and the change bloc somehow manage to to find some kind of compromise uh, that makes him prime minister or perhaps prime minister in rotations or prime minister for, for a period and then another person might be prime minister after. Right. So as you said, both um, both ruling coalitions, it seems, is, are trying to scrap together pretty much whatever parties they can um, in order to get closer to maintaining a majority in um, the parliament. So my question is, does this sort of, I guess, bridging the gap between such disparate parties in order to form a coalition, does that come at the price of political stability? As in, is it, would a ruling coalition that has parties with such disparate views, would that not be, um, would that lead to more political instability in Israel rather than less? Yes. The short answer is a coalition, if a coalition managed to unseat Netanyahu, or if Netanyahu built a coalition that was very slim, but especially if the change coalition came into power, that is really very, an amalgam of very disparate parties with very different points of view on many different things, you would not think that it's likely to last very long. Its almost main mission would simply be to unseat Netanyahu. That would be the main logic of the whole coalition. But then when you got down to the business of governing, they would disagree on a variety of different things. Still, I wouldn't rule out that they could find quite a few things to agree on. Israel is extremely tired of this political gridlock and this unending cycle of elections. And you could imagine a coalition coming together with a mission of stabilizing things just for the sake of stabilizing things. That would come at the price, of course, of pursuing any kind of dramatic policy. So if anyone abroad is thinking that Israel is about to embark on some new big initiative on the Palestinian issue, that's not about to happen. There's no chance of that. Because a coalition like that, uh, certainly if Naftali Bennett is prime minister, but even if he's not, uh, he or other right-wing members would be members of this coalition and very key members who could topple the coalition at any moment. And that means that there's not going to be any dramatic change on the Palestinian issue, nor would there be very big movement on the Iranian uh, Iranian issue as well. Israeli On that, Israelis are much more in consensus, in fact, than on the Palestinian issue. And there you would imagine mostly continuity. So what might a coalition like that do? They could try to pass a variety of domestic issues, uh, judicial reform, for example. Netanyahu, in his attempts to get out of his legal trouble, has also mounted a very vociferous public uh, relations campaign against the prosecution and, and the judiciary by extension. And uh, part of what a new coalition might try to do is to stabilize things and perhaps to pass some kind of legislation that would bring about a consensus agreement about the role of the judiciary, when can it invoke judicial review, uh, when can it invoke administrative review, uh, what is its uh, legal basis for action, all these things that are much clearer in the United States partly because there's a clearly written constitution, partly just tradition, a very long tradition over 200 years, in Israel are lacking. Tradition is much shorter, and there's no clearly written constitution. It's it's a much more complicated legal structure there. So, so far, we've discussed different factions and parties in Israeli politics, prevailing issues, um, and you know potential issues that you know a potential uh, coalition could address, and the unique role played by, um, of course, Prime Minister Netanyahu. I wanted to uh, look to the immediate future to cap off the podcast. So there has been discussion of you know possible fifth election happening if uh, there you know if coalition is unlikely to emerge. 
Do you think this outcome is likely? And what do you think is the most likely outcome um, in the immediate future? But also more broadly, what is the future of Israeli politics? You've said Israeli public um, is very tired of this constant gridlock in elections. But will this political instability persist or will there be some structural reforms that make uh, this gridlock and constant elections less likely than it has been in the last two years? So I think there are two things that would change this uh, constant uh, political crisis. The first is the end of the Netanyahu era. And and I don't mean to sound by that overly anti-Netanyahu. That's not my point in this comment. But these elections are about Netanyahu. And we know this because if Netanyahu would do what many prime ministers have done in the past when they fail to win, and especially if they fail to win four times, he would simply retire, step aside and say, I've been prime minister longer than any person in the history of Israel, and I can now retire and spend time with my family, as they say. Um, he's not going to do that. He's made that very clear, in part because of he's on, he's on trial and wants to stave that off, uh, but also perhaps because he believes he's the only one who can lead Israel. Had he stepped aside, it's not that the opposition would then gain power, it's that his own party would then easily form a coalition. His, his successor in his own Likud party would have a very easy time forming a coalition among uh, like-minded right-wing parties with a very stable coalition that could last three or four years, uh, which is the maximum. Um, and so really, a lot of this is truly about Netanyahu himself. And if he were removed from the scene by the electorate, or eventually perhaps if he's convicted, um, which will take time, if at all, if that happened, Israel would be much more stable. Secondly, there could be a change for the uh, uh, some kind of electoral reform. In the 1990s, Israel had an attempt at electoral reform, in fact. Uh, there was a direct election of the prime minister. So alongside electing the Knesset, Israelis also voted for the specific individual who would lead, lead uh, the government. And Netanyahu was elected, in fact, that way in 1996. That's the first election he won. This lasted only until the beginning of the 2000s when it was scuttled and Israel returned more or less to the old system. This is not... This, of course, makes it uh, less likely that Israel tries again, because when you've tried and failed, it becomes harder to try again. But having uh, these past two years, I think the chance of electoral reform becomes more likely. Not that Israel would return to a direct election of prime minister, it would not, but it might try, for example, to change uh, the minimum threshold or the way in which the person tasked with forming a a government uh, more clear and, and legally mandated. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Sachs. We really enjoyed having you on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and to the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.